We have an internet problem. So we cannot play Jimmy Evans today. Uh, but we're going to pick him up again because the message that he gives us on the end times is right on the money. It's very good. But we're going to pick up today. We're going to go to old-fashioned preaching today. And um, we're going to continue in our series that we've been on, actually, on the fruit of the Spirit. And we are, we're not forgetting that. We're just interrupting that for a period of time because the message that Jimmy has when it comes to the tipping point of where we're at in our world events is crucial. It's right now, and it's something that we need to have uh, relevant in our hearts and our lives. So we'll come back to that. But today we're going to talk about the fruit of the Spirit, and we're going to talk today about faithfulness and gentleness. Now read with me, uh, right here, Galatians chapter 5, 22. Read, uh, read the banners with me. The fruit of the Spirit is what? Is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now, we've been through all of the ones previous to what we're talking about today, faithfulness and gentleness. And there, we may find there may be quite a bit, a bit of overlap in the fruit, which is okay, because you know, one builds on the other. And when we get to the last week, last one of self-control, we're going to find that one kind of brings them all together. That one's, that's the kind of the, the one that, that without self-control, we really have nothing. Uh, but that's another time. Today, we're going to talk about faithfulness. Faithfulness and gentleness is what we're going to speak about today. Faithfulness. The Greek word used in this passage is pistis. P-I-S-T-I-S. Pistis. Pistis. And it's translated as faith, faithfulness, belief, trust, with an Im all with an implication that actions based on that trust or that faith may follow. So enough faith, enough um, belief, enough trust that an action is going to follow that belief. So faith is an action word. Action comes with faith. Faith by itself, as we're going to talk about in the book of James, is dead. Faith without action is dead. So faith is one of those words that isn't something that you just have and sit on it. Faith is not uh, it's, it's not a passive word. Faith is an action-based word. When I have belief and trust in something that I believe in, then I do something with it. And we're going to find out how important that is. The root word of faithfulness is faith. Now, what does God think about faith? Let's ask God. God, what do you think about faith? Well, he tells us. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. And by the way, open your Bible. Uh, we don't have any uh, words up as well because of the internet. So we are, I mean, so just let's just be old-fashioned today, okay? Let's open up our Bible. Everybody got a Bible with you? Everybody bring? No Bible today, Jack? Normally you bring yours. What's up? Okay, well, you have to trust me then. You just have to trust me that I'm reading the words correctly. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 says this, And without faith, remember, we're asking God what he thinks about faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Did you hear that? Without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Wow. God has an opinion. Can you believe that? God has an opinion, and he says without faith, it is impossible to please him. Because anyone that comes to him must truly believe that he exists and that God rewards those that seek him. So here we see faith in God's perspective as being very, very serious that a person having faith must live it out. 
They must live it out because he rewards, he rewards those that do. Isn't that cool that God rewards those who actually live out their faith by seeking him? God's into faithful people. God loves faithful people because if you're not faithful, he's not pleased with you. Did you hear that? Without faithfulness in your life, God is not pleased. Do you want to please God? Do you want to please your Heavenly Father? Then you must, and I must, be faithful. We could end the past, we could end church right now. Do you want to do that? No, let's keep going. There's more to hear. There's more to talk about. Dr. Alex Ness, and we've referenced him quite a bit in this study, talks about what a grounded faith is. If our faith is grounded and strong, immovably anchored in God, our lives will unquestionably result in faithfulness. If our lives are anchored in God, unmovable, then automatically your life will result in faithfulness to God because of your belief in God, because you've rooted yourself in God. Now, let me ask you this. Is God, if God is so much in the faithful people, is God faithful? Is God faithful to you and I? Yes, he is. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 4 through 9. This is in a different translation than the NIV, in case you're reading that. It says, I always thank my God for you. This is Paul speaking to the Corinthians. I always thank my God for you because of the grace that God has given you in Christ Jesus. In Jesus, you have, blessed, you have been blessed in every way, in all your speaking and in all your knowledge. The truth about Christ has been proved in you. So you have every gift from God while you wait for our Lord Jesus to come again. Here's, here's talk, this is God's faithfulness to us. Jesus will keep you strong until the end. Isn't that awesome? We just talked earlier about how intense the end of time is going to be, how it is, how the enemy is ramping up his intensity, right? And here's the faithfulness of God. Jesus will keep you strong until the end. He will keep you strong so that there will be no wrong in you on the day our Lord Jesus Christ comes again. God is faithful. He is the one who has called you to share life with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. That's why when we have a deep-rooted faith in God, we can be assured victory because he will keep us strong. I can't do it on my own, no, no, no better than you can. How many, is, how many of us have tried to change something that is not good in us and failed? Yeah, I have too. How many New Year's resolutions haven't made it past the first week in January? Yeah. Well, sometimes we just can't change ourselves. But through the power of God, the power of the Holy Spirit in us, there is nothing impossible. When I have belief in God, first of all, I please Him. And when I seek Him, He rewards me with faithfulness. So then, if God is faithful to us, how should we live our lives in front of others? How should we live to others if God is faithful to us? 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. This is what people should think about us. 
the, again, Paul speaking, this is what people should think about us. We are servants of Christ. We are the ones God has trusted with his secret truths. A person who is trusted with something must show that he is worthy of that trust. All right? God has shared some things with us. As a child of God, he has shared some truths to you that the world doesn't know. Do you believe that? As a child of God, the things of, to the world, the things of the cross are what? Foolishness. That's what the Bible says. To the world, the things of the cross are foolishness. But to those that believe, they make sense. God reveals things to us. He's given you and I some truths that the world doesn't have. So therefore, we must live in front of the world as, some, as someone that has something to show them, and we must be worthy of that trust. We must be faithful in how we live our lives in front of the world. The world judges us as we are faithful or unfaithful to live out what we profess to believe. If I profess to believe something, the world is going to judge me based upon my actions of the type of person that I am. If I profess to believe something and then don't live like I believe it, what do we call that? Say that again. A hypocrite. Yeah, hypocrisy. Yeah, absolutely. We are, we are not a child of God when we're operating that way. See, if my actions don't line up with what my mouth says, then I lose all credibility with the lost world around me. If my actions don't line up with what my mouth says I am, I've lost the credibility to go to that person and be what God wants me to be to that person. Now, again, I, as we always put the disclaimer in here, because we're not talking about perfection, because we're not perfect people. We're forgiven people, as we sang about. But when I live my life in front of people, where I willfully sin, or I dive into the pleasures of the world right along with them, and then turn around and then try to save them, what kind of credibility do I have? None. Zero. Nilch. Nothing. So therefore, I have to live my life differently, don't I? We have to be set apart. We have to be a peculiar people, a called people, a holy priesthood. If I'm going to be effective with people, I need to live my life godly in front of people. Not perfect, but godly to the best that I can. Can I be judged faithful or unfaithful by my, by, by my lack of actions? Now, this, this is getting a little bit more intense now because um, if I'm judged by what I do, can I be judged by what I don't do? In other words, if I don't share Christ with the lost world, can I be judged for that? When God puts me an opportunity in fellowship with non-believers, why do you think, first of all, that he puts us in opportunity to have fellowship with non-believers? Why do you think he does that? Anybody tell me? To do what? Yeah, to share, his, to share our faith. The Bible says that we must preach the word. How would they know unless somebody preached? How would they know unless somebody shared the gospel? Right? So if God puts me in a position 
of influence in a worldly situation, then I have a responsibility to let my light shine there, right? Remember the little song we'd sing about the light, about the candle, Don't this little light of mine? Yeah. If, if we don't light the candle to put a bushel over it, do we? It doesn't make any sense that we would light the candle and then hide it. So if God is going to be the light of life in me, and he puts me in a dark world where I have opportunity to let my light shine, can I be judged if I put a bushel over it? Yeah. So what we, what we need to do then is let our light shine. We need to be bold for Jesus in all situations. We do not have any reason to fear man. We already talked about it early about how we are going to be rejected by Satan. We are going to be rejected by Satan. In fact, we're going to be rejected by the world. Just so you know that. Just so you know that right up front. When you live for Christ in the world, they will reject you. Some, though, will be drawn to the light. Some, though, will see you have something different in your life and they want to know what it is. See, we don't know when or what God is dealing with people in their hearts and lives when we walk into their life. We, there may be a praying mother or a praying father or a grandmother or a grandfather praying for that lost loved one. And they may be praying, Lord, send somebody across their path. Send somebody across their path that will share Jesus today. And that person may be right on the verge of accepting Christ if a person would cross their path that would share. Well, the thing is, that might be you. And that might be me. And that God has put you in that position to be that sharer of the good news. And if we're faithful, if we're faithful to share the good news, we might be in part of welcoming a new convert or a new person into the kingdom of God. Make sense? Isn't that good to think about that? You don't know. When you walk out of this place today, when God puts you in front of somebody's path, you just don't know what God's dealing with in that person's heart. And what you say may be just a thing that God needed to have said that would put that person over the edge into eternity. So, we need to know that. James tells us that. James instructs us on how our action and our faith go together. If faith is going to be alive, if we're going to have that active faith that pleases the Lord, James tells us in chapter 2. James chapter 2, beginning at verse, 10, verse 14 re, through verse 26. I'll read it for you. You can open your Bible and read it with me. But James says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if, not, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Now Paul or James is referencing here in this particular passage physical help, that we physically help people, which is the right thing to do. If you have the ability to do it, help them. But we can also apply this into the spiritual world. If I have spiritual wealth, I, gotta, I have to share it. If I have the truth that is hidden in my heart, I have to share it. That's putting your faith in action. And then he goes on in verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith, 
I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe there is one God? Good for you. Even the, de even the demons believe that, and they shudder. It scares them. Even the demons believe in God, but they have no, but they have no help. Verse 20, you foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. Faith and action must go together. Verse 25, in the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. My body, if I don't have the spirit of life in me, I'm going to die. I'm dead. <laughs> if the spirit of life in me is not there, I'm a dead person. Well, it's that serious with faith and action. It's that serious with faith and action. I can't have faith and no deeds. I can't have faith and no action. No more than I can be alive with no spirit in me. Scripture is very clear in this area of faith and action. A person that's growing and maturing in the fruit of faithfulness is a person that's actively working in and growing the kingdom of God. You're going to be actively engaged if you have faith. You cannot be a passive bystander in the kingdom of God. You must be active somehow, somewhere in your faith. You must be putting action to your faith. If a person claims to be a godly person and isn't found faithful in putting their time and effort into practice, then you're deceived. I, I just got to say it in love. We have to call it what it is. Faith must be, must, be, must be accompanied with action. You must be involved working somewhere in the church, where in the community, helping people that are needy. You must be doing things like investing your time into a younger Christian. You must be mentoring, discipling, um, leading them somehow. You must be making yourself available for whatever the body of Christ needs. That doesn't mean you duplicate efforts with somebody else. You don't try to be like Joe. No, you be like you and let God operate through you the way God wants to operate through you. But you must be doing something. Jesus told a parable that emphasized the point of a person that said they would do something and didn't do it versus a person that said they won't and they did. And then he asked the question, who was the, most, who's, who was the faithful one? Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21, verse 28. Jesus asked the question, as he often did when people asked him questions, he often answered with a question. He said, what do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. The first son answered, but later he changed his mind and went. 
Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did his father, did what his father wanted? Which of the two did what his father wanted? The one that said, no, I'm not going to do it, and then did it? Or the one that said, yeah, I'll do it, but didn't do it? They answered, the first. Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. He's talking to the Jewish hypocrites or the, or the righteous leaders, the, the, the believers or the, the, the uh, Pharisees. Talking to, he's talking to me. He's talking to you. That's who he's talking to, right? For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes or the sinners of this world, they did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. So what Jesus is saying here, he said, it's not what you say, it's what you do. Now, clearly, the best answer would be to say, yes, Lord, I'll go work in the vineyard and then go work in the vineyard. That would be the best son. But Jesus is saying, there are many people that give lip service in the church today. There are many people that say, yeah, I'll do it. I'll raise my hand. I'll volunteer when everybody around me sees me lift my hand. But then when it comes to do the work, all of a sudden, I'm too busy. Ah, I got busy. I just couldn't fit it into my schedule. Which one is pleasing the Lord? Which one? See, a faithful person does what he says he'll do. A faithful person does what he says he will do. And here's the other fact. We all find the time to do what we want to do. I'm just as much, I'm just as guilty as you are. I'm talking to myself right now. I can find a time to fly my drone. I love to fly it. And I hope I never get in trouble or hurt anybody. But, you know, I can find time in my busy schedule to fly my drone. But can I find time to pray? But can I find time to help somebody else? But can I, time to be, can I find the time to be faithful to the church? Can I? You see, we're not only being judged by the world. We talked about how our faithfulness is, we're, our faithfulness is being judged by the world, whether we're going to have credibility in the world. But we're also being judged faithful by our brothers and sisters in Christ. If I want to have any credibility to speak to you as a pastor, if, I want, if you want any credibility to speak to your brother as a Christian brother, then what do you need to do? You need to develop trust with that person. You need to develop some faithfulness with that person. If the words you speak are going to have any weight in their life, you must be a faithful person. Now, I'm going to step on some toes. It's okay, I can do this. I love you. But we have a lot of people that say they're going to do something and then never show up. And then they want to be of authority in the church. I want to have a Sunday school teacher that wants to teach Sunday school but they don't show up when somebody else is teaching. I have somebody else that wants to do this, but they don't do that. Again, I'm not talking for perfection. I'm talking reality. I'm talking what Jesus is talking about. Jesus loved the people that he spoke with, but he spoke truth to them. He don't speak things that they want to hear. He spoke truth that would help them get through life and be pleasing to his Father. And that's all we want to preach about. When we preach here, we want to preach that truth because we want to be pleasing to God. So if I'm going to be 
if I am going to be considered an elder in the church, then I need to act like one. I need to be faithful like one. I need to be diligent like one. Amen? Yeah, it helps us all when we do this because it helps you and I to be faithful in those around us for their benefit as much as for your own benefit. Sometimes what it means is submitting to people. I have a hard time submitting to people. Do you? But sometimes we are to submit to people. In fact, can I rephrase that? All the time, we are to submit to those that are in leadership above us. I have to submit to Officer Scott. When I see, in fact, I had to come to Scott earlier this week because I'm going to confess, Scott, confession is good for the soul. I left the bus garage in a hurry. I did not put my seatbelt on. And I turned the corner to go on down May Street to go to Ferry Street, and there I saw Officer Scott in his unmarked police car. And I realized I didn't have my seatbelt on. And I'm thinking, you know what? I just put him in an awkward spot. Because by the law, he should pull me over and give me a ticket. Because I wasn't faithful in doing what I should do, I put my brother in an awkward spot. Because now I made him make a choice. Did you see my seatbelt was off, Scott? Good. <laughs> I'm off. Forget the confession. Forget it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, he was talking on his cell phone. Yeah. <laughs> the point is, though, I did text him. When I got back to my driveway at home, I texted him. I said, Scott, by the way, FYI, I put my seatbelt on. And I texted you when I got to my driveway. I wasn't texting while I was driving, even though that's another story, another day. I'm not going to go there. But it's important that we be faithful in the little things so that we then have relevance to the big things. Now, here's a really interesting thing, an observation about habits and addictions. You know, habits and addictions can kind of go along with faithfulness. But here's something, really, think about this. Habits and addictions, most of the time, typically, if not all the time, I'm trying to think of one, actually, are uh, always associated with things that bring damage or destruction to the person. Habits and addictions are normally the things that bring destruction. Why is that? Let me give you some examples. People are addicted to alcohol. They, get, they, become, alcohol, they become addicted to alcohol. People become addicted to nicotine. Drug addicts get ad addicted to the drug that makes them high. Their bodies crave that. They get addicted to it. When was the last time you ever heard a person say that they were addicted to prayer? They were addicted to Bible study. They were addicted to attending church and being in, being in church whenever the doors were open. They were addicted to small groups. They were addicted to, to opening the word with their friends. We're not addicted to godly things. Why? See, the devil uses addictions to destroy us. He doesn't love you. The devil doesn't care why you're an alcoholic. The devil doesn't care why you're a sexual pervert. The, the devil doesn't care why. 
He just wants you to be one because he knows that will destroy you. All right? So the addictions that he puts on us, he's a slave driver. He's a bondage giver. He brings bondage to destroy you, not because he loves you, but to destroy you. God, on the, on the other hand, is a God of love. And the only way true love is proven is when I have a choice. God will never addict you to Bible reading because he did not make you a robot. He will not addict you to prayer because he did not make you a robot. He made you a person with free choice. So when you want to prove your love to God, he gives you the ability to do that by your choice to pray, by your choice to read the word, by your choice to be here in Sunday school or to be here in church or to be here on Wednesdays or to be here in Bible studies or whatever. It's always a choice when it comes to God because God is not a slave driver. God loves you. And he wants to show his love to you. And he's, the only way he knows you're going to love him back, the only way he recognizes it is when our actions show it. It's when we say, yes, I love you back, Jesus, and, I, and I'm going to prove it to you because I'm going to be faithful to your word and I'm going to listen to you and I'm going to obey. The Bible says, if you love me, you'll obey me. That's what Jesus said. So our love is never an addiction. It's never a habit. It's a choice. Let's talk about gentleness. We kind of beat up faithfulness a little bit. So much more to talk about, but let's move on to gentleness. Time is slipping by. Gentleness. The Greek word for gentleness is peruts. P-R-A-U-T-E-S. Peruts. But it is defined as gentleness, meekness, and true humility. Gentleness, meekness, true humility. Now, this caught my eye right away. When I heard the word true humility, that must mean there must be a false humility. If there is a true humility, is there not a false humility? Well, what does that look like? What is a false humility? Well, can we just say it what it is? It's pride. <laughs> if it's not true humility, it's pride. But yet it can come across as a, oh, I'm such a humble person. It's a person that says, um that I can't do enough. Oh, I, I'm just not good enough to do that. Or I don't speak good enough to be a teacher. Or I'm not smart enough. I, I'm just not talented enough. I'm so humble. No, it is. It's your pride. You're prideful. And it's coming across as, oh, I'm just not good enough. And all, and, and, and all you really want is somebody to come along and say, well, yes, you are. Oh, yes, you're smart enough. Yes, you're good enough. Yes, you speak well enough. And all that is is pride wrapped up in a, in, in a wrapper called false humility. So if there's true humility, there's false humility. Don't you think God knows the difference? The fruit of gentleness is a gentle disposition. It's the opposite of pride and arrogance. Dr. Ness says this again. A gentle or a meek person will maintain a balance in passions and temper. He may be angry, but not to the point of sinful anger. He may suffer injustices, but will not seek revenge. It is the finest attribute of strength. Gentleness or meekness must never be interpreted as weakness. Jesus was very meek and very gentle, but Jesus was not weak. I can never think of a, a, a passage in Scripture where Jesus showed weakness. Not against temptation, not against the devil, not against the Pharisees, 
not against anybody. He was very strong, but yet he was very meek. He was very gentle. There's a difference, isn't there? We see many examples. You can read many examples. Moses and Abraham and David. I'm not going to go through those examples right now. But if you read their life, what they did, how they handled their life, they were very, very strong people, but yet very, very meek in their disposition. How Moses dealt with the Israelites 40 years in a desert. How David dealt with his son, Absalom, who was trying to kill him, and even how he dealt with King Saul. You know, we can read, you can read example after example in the Old Testament in our heroes about all their gentleness. But here's a question. Were these, all, were these men all born with the fruit of gentleness? Were they born with it? Or did they have to develop it? Moses is a good example, just to highlight Moses' life. Remember, when Moses was born into the, into the, into the household of Pharaoh, well, not born, he was, you know the story of Moses, he was picked up by Pharaoh's daughter, brought into the household, raised as a son of Pharaoh. Moses had, when he realized who he was, he had, he had opportunity to show his strength by killing an Egyptian, thinking that that was going to be the way he would be a deliverer by using the strength of his office. And what happened there? You can read about it in Exodus chapter 2, but let me just highlight it. You can read it. But what happened is that when another Israelite saw what he did, Moses thought, well, good, he's going to see that I'm really on his side. The Israelites said, are you going to kill me too? He didn't, they didn't receive that. They didn't receive it because Moses was not coming in an attitude of meekness. He was coming in an attitude of strength, of his own strength. It took Moses getting kicked out of Egypt, spending 40 years in a desert tending sheep to learn meekness so that when God called him finally by the burning bush, he was a meek and gentle man that was ready now to be used of God. And if you read that account, you'll see how Moses then truly was a humble man, truly came to God, and when God called him, Moses had real apprehension, but it wasn't false humility, it was true humility. And God said, Moses, I can handle it. I am. Tell him the I am sent you. And Moses was then encouraged by God to take up the role of deliverer as a meek man, not as a man in his own strength. We need to learn that. You can read the story. I encourage you to go back and read the story. Exodus chapter 2 and Exodus chapter 3 and read how Moses developed meekness so that he then could be used of God in a powerful way. Another one, real quick, that started off meek and ended wrong was King Saul. King Saul was a man that was chosen by God to be the king of Israel, the first king. And he was a meek man. He did not even want the office. He did not want it. He didn't think he could do it. He, wasn't, he truly was humble. But as he was in the office, he ended up being one of the most prideful, arrogant men of history and he, how he defended himself and how he was basically was, he, he committed suicide in the office because of his sin against God. So, yes, we're not born with meekness. It has to be developed. It has to be developed and proven in us, but then we have to continue to nurture it and live in, a, in our life, or we can become like King Saul. I would encourage you to read that as well. How do we apply this in our life today? How do we apply this? For 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 6, I, Paul, am begging you with the gentleness and the kindness of Christ. 
Some say that I'm bold when I'm writing you from a distance, but not when I'm there with you. Think, they think our motives for what we do like those of the world. I plan to be very bold against those people when I come. I hope I will not need to use that same boldness with you, Christian brother. We live in this world, but we do not fight our battles in the same way the world does. The weapons we use are not human ones. Our weapons have power from God and can destroy the enemy's strong places. That's what we talked about earlier today. We destroy people's arguments, and we tear down every proud idea that raises itself against the knowledge of God. We also capture every thought and make it give up and obey Christ. We make our thoughts give up. We take captive our thoughts. We are ready to punish anyone there who does not obey, but first we want you to be fully obedient. We must first humble ourselves in meekness and, and, and Christ-likeness. Paul begs the people there to do that. And we're also given a mandate. Here's another one. We're given a mandate by God to help Christian brothers that are fallen. We're given a mandate. Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 2. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently, gently, but watch yourselves or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. You see, when we're walking with our brothers and sisters and we see something, it's our responsibility to go to them in love, gently instruct them, you know, it, re- it reminds me of the, of the show that's on the Discovery or on the Weather Channel about this, this road going through icy places and these roads, these trucks quite often go in the ditch and this great, great big uh, other wrecker comes to help them out, pull them out. This is meekness described in my opinion. This is the way I see it. You've got this great big wrecker. I mean, it's, it's big. It's a big diesel semi-truck made into a wrecker and its job is to pull somebody else out of the ditch. This is how we help our Christian brothers and sisters out of the ditch. This big wrecker has all the power necessary to do it. But when you watch this show, you see how these guys are strategically thinking, where do we put the cables? How do we do this? How do we pull this truck out of the ditch without damaging it? They got the power to do it, but how do we do it without causing more damage? How do we do it without causing more turmoil in that other vehicle? They have to be very careful. It's power under control is meekness. Great power, but it's under control. How do we do this gently so that we don't destroy that truck? Yeah, we get it back up on the road, but when we get it back on the road, it's useless because we've destroyed it in getting it out of the ditch. The other thing, the other thing we find out about this is sometimes the guy running the big tr- wrecker realizes that if he's not careful, he, he'll pull himself into the ditch. So he's got to be careful how he does this so that he may, not, he may get himself into a worse trouble and they both will be in the ditch if they use his power wrong. So here we are, Christian brother. He tells us here that we are to help our Christian brothers get out of the ditch, but we do it with a gentle, meek spirit and we watch ourselves that we don't fall into the same sin. But yet we're given a mandate to do it. We don't walk by and ignore them. We don't say, have a great life. I'm over here, and we know this brother's struggling. Help your brother out. Go to him. And here's the deal. If you're in a ditch, receive help. If you're in a ditch, you may not even know you're in a ditch. But if a brother comes to you and says, you know, I've been praying. The Lord's given me something for you. Listen. Listen. Let the Lord show you something that you might not know about yourself. And let him help you get pulled back on the right and narrow road. Amen. Jackie? If you'd come.
I want to end it this way. Why is gentleness or a meekness so important to God? Why is it so important to God? David tells us in Psalms chapter 37, A little while, and the wicked will be no more. Though you look for them, they will not be found. But the meek will inherit the land and enjoy peace and prosperity. The wicked plot against the righteous and gnash their teeth at them. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he knows their day is coming. God has a special place reserved in his heart for the meek at heart. God has a special place reserved for you if you're meek. He, he opposes the proud. He opposes those that are, are, are proud against him or, re or rebel against him. But he has a place for those that are able to keep their trust in God and allow the power of God to deliver them. He has a place for the meek. That's why it's so important. In fact, if we don't have meekness, we truly can't navigate life. If we can't have the meekness of God in us, we truly can't be pleasing to the Lord. We can't be bold in ourselves, proud and arrogant, going through life thinking that we're winning those for Christ if we don't have meekness in our life. It's that important. It's that vitally important. Like faith without action is dead, meekness and gentleness must accompany the life of a believer. They go together. Very, very important that we think that way. Isaiah 29, 19 through 20. Once more, the humble will rejoice in the Lord. The needy will rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. The ruthless will vanish. The mockers will disappear. And all who have an eye for the evil will be cut down. It's the humble that will rejoice in the Lord. It's the meek person. Meek people are good people. They seek, their, they seek not their own good, but that of others. They seek others' welfare. They live for others. Meek people are not offensive. They do not seek to hurt or to be mean to others. They move tenderly, softly, quietly, modestly among others. They may reprove and rebuke, but it is done with long-suffering and tears. We all love meek and gentle people. Let us then be those that the Lord, as well as the world, is looking for. Meekness or gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit. We want to end today with communion. And this is a great opportunity to do that as we look at our life and we just say, God, there's things in my life. I, I want to be more faithful. I, I want action with my faith. I want meekness in my life. This is an opportunity we come together. It's, it's, uh, it's celebrate the Lord's table. I know it's two minutes after 12, but can you please be patient with me here as we do this? And let's just enter in and let's just enjoy the Lord's table this morning. Would you come down and, as we normally do? Just come to the front and let's just entertain. Let's partake today together. Obviously, you do not need to be a member of our church to have communion. This is all, the only requirement of communion is that you love Jesus and that you have your heart is right with the Lord and that you're not a haughty person. We're not a bold, arrogant person. We're meek, gentle in the name of Jesus. That's the most important thing is that we have our heart right with the Lord and communion is very serious. This is not a time where we just do it because our friends are doing it. We don't do it because our other families are doing it. If, if you're not right with the Lord, then you need to get yourself right with Jesus before we go any further. It's that serious. If, you need, if, you, if there's anything in your life 
that is a, is a hindrance to you to take communion without a clear conscience be, be, before the Lord, then I encourage you, I encourage you strongly to take some time right now, close your eyes, and just deal with this. Say, Jesus, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for my sin. I'm sorry that I've fallen down. And I want to be right with you. I want to be pure before you. I do not want to take anything unworthily. I do not want to defame the Lord of the, ta- the table, I don't, of, of the Lord this morning. I don't want to mock at all anything that um, you died in the cross for me. I want this to be truly relevant in my life. I want to make sure that my life honors you to the best that it can. And I'm sorry. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had said he'd given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take a look at this cracker for a minute. Let's just lift it up before the Lord this morning. Let's just recognize what this is. This is not just a saltine cracker. This is symbolic of the Lord's body that was broken for us. It's, it's broken. It's broken. Christ's body was broken for us that we may be healed. Amen. Let's just uh, take the time. Let's just lift us up before the Lord. Let's just pray. Father, we just come before you in Jesus' name. We thank you, Lord, for doing what you did for us on the cross so many years ago. And Lord, even though you did it 2,000 years ago, it's relevant today. It's powerful today. And we receive the benefit of what your broken life gave for us. And now, Lord, as we partake of this cracker, we recognize that this is the body of Christ. And we know and we believe, and we trust. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's partake this morning. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father. We worship your name. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the death of the Lord until he comes. We're proclaiming, we're remembering what Jesus did on the cross. Every time we do this, this is not just a habit. This is not an addiction. This is the choice that we do to remember the death and the, and the penalty and the deliverance of what Jesus did for us on the cross. Amen? Let's lift the cup above and just thank the Lord for this blood. Father, we thank you. We thank you, Jesus, once again for the blood of Jesus the blood that gives life. You shed, you bled out. Lord, you gave it all. You emptied yourself so that we could have everything, that we could be full of life. You gave up yours, and we receive that now, and we just drink this cup in remembrance of you until the day, God, that you serve it to us, fresh and new. Lord, until that time, we remember you, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's partake together. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. We're going to sing the song that Jackie's playing, and then we'll pray. But let's just take the moment now, and let's just thank him. Let's just recognize what we've just done and what we've, who we've just drank with and eaten with. We've eaten with Jesus. Amen.
Father, we thank you for this day. We honor you, Father, with our time and with our love, with our faith and our action that comes together. Lord, I pray for the, the humility. I pray for meekness and gentleness. Lord, I pray that we would develop these fruits and that they would be pleasing to you and that they would give nourishment to our body as well as to the bodies around us, that the fruit would have life in us. I thank you, Father. We just praise you. Give us a great day today as we go to our homes. Lord, let us not walk out of your presence. Let us not walk out of your spirit. But Lord, I pray that it goes with us into our lives today, throughout this week. Just grow in us and get stronger within us, we pray. We thank you for your mercies and your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Have a great day in the Lord today. Amen. Be blessed.